Are you an architect, designer, contractor, or engineer? Modeler.com is a platform connecting architects and other specifiers with building product manufacturers. Modeler.com's engaged network of over 240,000 architects, designers, and construction professionals use Modeler.com's tools to discover, discuss, and specify products appropriate for building projects. We at KZSU Stanford thank Modeler.com for the generous underwriting of production and broadcasting costs for The Modern Architect. KZSU, Stanford University's FM radio station broadcasting across the Bay Area on 90.1 FM and across the world at kzsu.org. And from the campus of Stanford University, this is the Modern Architect radio show and podcast, which features one-on-one interviews with renowned and cutting-edge architects, influencers, and sustainability leaders. The show and podcast will inform, educate, illuminate, the transformation, joy, and inspiration architecture brings to our cities, communities, and lives. I'm Tom Dior. For our guest today, let's welcome David Baker, principal of David Baker Architects, a progressive architecture firm located in San Francisco and Oakland that creates acclaimed buildings and urban environments. DBA is known for exceptional housing, creative site strategies, designing for density, and integrating new construction into the public realm. For more information, feel free to visit dbarchitect.com. Again, dbarchitect.com. Hello, David. We're honored and excited to have you on the Modern Architect Radio Show today. Oh, likewise. David, we like to start off with Early inspirations, if you will. If you can recall back as far as you can, either a galvanizing moment or galvanizing moments where, you know, where you are today and where you were at some point in your life where you say, you know, I think I want to be an architect or I like design or I like us, the whole process. Well, can I've, you share with us? Yeah, my dad is, uh, was an interesting guy. He was born on a farm. He was born in 1899 and he was a, uh, became a migrant farm worker and eventually he went through life and he had a sort of a second, I don't know, career in his life where he he read the autobiography of Frank Lloyd Wright and he decided to build uh, modern solar houses. Actually, one in Michigan, which is kind of a funny thing to do since the sun doesn't shine all winter. But he also built one in Arizona and he uh, built them himself and was uh, really influenced by modern architecture. He actually... I uh, had a letter from this famous architecture journal in L.A. in which they said, gee, we're, we'd really like to publish your work, but since you dropped out of ninth grade because you had to ride a horse 10 miles to high school. No way, really? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> in the wintertime on unplowed roads mm-hmm. in Michigan. So you had to take a sleigh. So when I was a kid, I thought, well, 10 miles, you know, 10 minutes. But, yeah. uh, you know, anyways, so he had, uh, when, when I was a kid, he bought this, like, Lives of the Great Architects. So I was... When I was like eight, I was reading this, you know, Le Corbusier and Mies van der Rohe and these books like that. And I also, uh, he gave me a scale and a triangle because he would design these houses himself and they were quite beautiful. So anyway, that's, that was my major influence. 
Yeah. So would you kind of sit at his knee, so to speak, and uh, take a look at the drawings, or was it just something that just intrigued uh, you? Yeah, you know, he, it was just, he was a crazy guy. He also did giant uh, ferro-cement sculptures, and he was, uh, I would refer to him sort of officially as a highly driven and in, in he would you know like be working in concrete and bleeding in the concrete and i'd go dad put on your gloves and he'd go no i don't get the feel for it unless i'm <laughs> sticking my hands in this razor sharp wire so yeah. uh you know it's kind of set a limit for me like i didn't want to do that yeah but I, I settled on architecture instead yeah interesting that you uh, a word in particular highly driven would you consider yourself Highly driven? Oh, you know, so what happened is is that uh, I went to college in uh, University of Michigan, and they used to give this thing called the raw carrots test. And when there was a bunch of random questions, and they asked various people, and then they figured out what the people had done, and they'd match you with your, uh, you know, capabilities. And so I had a zero, zero business aptitude. Zero, zero? Zero, zero. You know, there, somebody's got to be in the zero percentile. Oh. And, I didn't know uh, it's possible. Uh, yeah, you know, the, uh, and then the other one, I had a ninety-nine percent achiever personality. So, <laughs> whoa! So you had zero, zero, and ninety-nine. Yeah, yeah. That, so that was a little, you know. Yeah, what I, was I your thought? This was the old days, you know. And I think to be a good businessman, you had to say, you know, if your employee gets pregnant, you give her, you know, sixteen weeks of paid leave, or you fire her. And in those days, the correct answer was, of course, you fire her. You yeah, know. that's amazing, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, so, so I probably said something socialistic or something. <laughs> and they say, oh, that guy. <laughs> no. Wow. So it's supposed to be random. You know, they, and one of the te- they called it the raw carrots test because one of the questions was, do you like raw cooked carrots? And that was, you know, like CEOs liked raw carrots, like maybe or vice versa, something like that. Oh, so that was, that was, those were the early algorithms to measure. Yeah, it was, a, you know, something... The psychiatrist had cooked up. <laughs> okay. Anyway, so that that's, uh, yeah. So what, you were at University of Michigan, mm-hmm. Ann Arbor, correct? Correct. And I didn't get into Stanford. That's why. Okay. So actually, they, they, I applied. I just want to say. Uh, I'll have to share with you. A lot of the folks that choose not to go to Stanford. I didn't choose. I wanted to go. I didn't get in. They actually have wonderful careers. Amazing. In fact, sometimes, often, even better than those at Stanford. Okay, don't get upset here. But anyway, so... No, I'm Cal. Okay. <laughs> I could sing the Mighty Golden Bear, but maybe oh, not. We won't edit anything here. We're going to let this all roll, all right, <laughs> for our audience. So you have that opportunity. So what intrigued you, at least in the uh, University of Michigan program, to go with architecture? Was it just your own drive? or Were, well, yeah, were you encouraged by I teachers? Actually, they or? had a major there. You know, they had like a okay. five, so I was a five-year architecture major. But this was 1968, and I, so I promptly dropped out and hitchhiked to Berkeley. Did you really? Oh, man. Where You're a life a, liver, huh? Yeah, I was like an editor of the uh, Berkeley Tribe, which was the underground you know, newspaper radical. <laughs> so That's in my dossier, if you... Yeah, no, no, no. So what really struck you to, to be that uh, independent? Well, you know, as I was saying, my, I was probably I thought it was normal. Okay. Like my dad had, he, you know, he had... A, after being a farm worker, he became a chauffeur, and then he ran businesses. He, in, you know, he just kind of, ne- he's never looked back. So he, you know, retired when he was 49, but worked half time and did all this, this stuff, which I thought was, you know, normal. Yeah. Retiring. He did stuff like ceramic. Yeah. He, well, he'd work half day, and then he'd do ceramics or design houses or all right, okay. he became a, a well-known wildlife photographer. So he had this 
astronomy. You, you know, he'd... Wow, real <laughs> renaissance. Yeah, it was, it was interesting. But, so I thought that was... At some point in my life, I went, oh, <laughs> you mean everybody's parents aren't like this? <laughs> now, how about your peers? Did you even share that with your peers? Or were you able to? I thought it was, you know, I was just like, what? You know, <laughs> I never, you know, it just seemed like the normal thing to do. Yeah. So I, I immediately out of, you know, I went to, I dropped out. And then I went back to school to a, actually a free school in Michigan, a state college. It was a free school and built a house for credit and a, you know, you designed your own curriculum back in the good old days when you could get into college. Uh, you couldn't get into any schools, uh, any grad schools now. So I got an undergraduate degree at this free college, got into University of California, came back here, not as a hippie. Did you drive hitchhike? How'd you get back? You I think I drove. I had, I'd been doing a lot of construction work and, okay. and built, I, I had a whole, I just convinced, I said, hey, you want to build a house? I'll design it and build it. So I foolishly did that for a number of houses and learned a lot of what I didn't want to do. Okay. I didn't want to dig any more sewer laterals and didn't manage not to die. It was good. Or (laughs) the houses didn't fall down. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting that you said you foolishly did that. Was it because it was really wasn't a plan or a a thought to going ahead or, or Uh, I I haven't been very strategic in my life by design. Well, I, I think, you know, some people, like, they set out and, and go, well, I want to, you know, do this. And then they, I think there's people who do that, right? They, oh, yeah. They decide what they want to do and then yeah. they make strategic steps to do it. And, and I, and I knew I wanted to be an architect, but okay. uh, other than that, I, I hadn't, you know, no, I just kind of fell into things, is the only way to describe it. Yeah. So when you fell into things, was there a level of confidence that you knew you'd land on your feet, so to speak? I don't or know. You just I, never, said, going just, I just never thought about that part. Uh, <laughs> you just let it rip. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, this, for example, we at Cal, you could do uh, quite a bit of independent study at, at that point. And so I was in a three-year program. I like, wrote up the stuff I'd done before as independent study, got out in two years, spent the last six months partnering with an architecture firm to enter a, a state-level competition for energy-efficient office building with solar housing attached. We came in second, and then uh, I graduated, and the uh, state of California uh, went, oh, well, we want to talk to you, the architecture firm, okay. about doing an energy-efficient state office building. And so we formed a firm right out of college called Solark. And uh, it was, I was with a couple other Cal students, and uh, so we immediately, you know, we had a firm like before we graduated. And then we uh, went after the state office building, got the state office building, won a progressive architecture award. Still in San Jose. It's a very nice building. It's all naturally ventilated and daylit and all the highest technology what possible. What year was this approximately? 1978. Whoa. Yeah, I know. Way ahead of Pleocene. Please. <laughs> well, my dad was doing yeah. solar houses in 1949, yeah. so. Wow. Yeah, yeah. And there were, you know, these movements come and go. So, did you think there would be a movement? Or, yeah, what's your thought if you can recall back that time, even this is 78 to go solar? You think, did you think, oh, everyone, oh, yeah, I mean, you got to remember that was the oil crisis. That's right. And people were wandering around trying to find gasoline. (laughs) And, uh, you know, Jimmy Carter was was turning down his thermostat and wearing a sweater and all that stuff. So, and actually, what I find interesting 
is that I, I came into adulthood in this very radical period when things changed rapidly socially and politically in the United States. And I thought they would just keep getting more progressive. And what actually happened is this guy kept getting more conservative for the ever, you know, since 1980 till now, I think the direction of the country has not been to, uh, you know, become like totally progressive. It seems like we're maybe a little, yeah. how are you more conservative? How are you, um, helping to influence the direction for solar, for energy efficiency. I know you've got a ton of great projects, but in particular, is there is there any movement legislatively that you've kind of... Well, had? I mean, people are very interested in it right now, and we're trying to, you know, because many people think that we're facing huge challenge with, uh, you know, climate change, California becoming a big fire zone every for three quarters of the year. There's a lot of, you know, things that are happening. And, and, and um, I think the consensus, which could be wrong, but I think the consensus is things are not going to get better. So we have to adapt and mitigate and also, uh, I think, be positive and not just go, well, let's get a really big army and take all the oil and burn it and <laughs> screw the rest of the world, Yeah, which I think would be many people's approach. Yeah. You know, we're trying to uh, actually... I think in California particularly, and uh, I think there's a huge interest in, uh, you know, proactive moving civilization forward instead of having it, you know, I think in the next hundred years, pretty critical. <laughs> yeah. So, so, yeah, that moving civilization forward. Well, we so, have to collaborate and cooperate. Right? Okay. Yeah. If you can say in the last, say, the last three to five years, would you say there's greater collaboration between your firm, arc engineers, builders, city planners, civic leaders, is there more collaboration now within the say, like I guess, three to five years or hopefully yeah, no, not I less? Think that, but, I don't know if you ever read The Fountainhead. No, I've heard yeah, of Ayn it. Rand. Yeah. So okay. the good news is that young architects tend not to read The Fountainhead anymore. It was, this was this guy who was like kind of modeled after an extremely macho Frank Lloyd Wright who okay. wandered around, you know, just being like, I am, you know, the ego designer so a lot of architects would read that and then they would be like i am a genius you know oh so and, the myth actually became part of the persona in a way. oh i think our, you know yeah. a lot of architects were drawn to that that this idea of the the artist hero and <laughs> uh you know i think that what i've found is that people the younger people nowadays at some point kindergarten teachers started making people share and they started calling bullies out and and so people come in there and they're much more collaborative and less ego driven and they're not in this I'm a genius you will do as I say they're more in a the team will figure this out in a thoughtful and productive way that's a fantastic thing but particularly because architecture and our response to the to the world's issues have gotten much more complex and so you really you know you can't be the genius guy there with your red pencil with the kind of the slave ship yeah. rowing <laughs> Which was kind of the old... That's pretty crude, but I get what you're saying. That's the old notion of an architecture yeah. firm is, you know, you had the, the boss and then you had the drafts people. Yeah. Draftsmen, probably. So days. how would you describe your culture? At oh, your it's firm? like super collaborative. It's, it's, yeah. uh, it's, you know, I've been founded the firm, as I said, like out of, out of grad school. And then this firm, which was pure architecture, and Solark was, was focusing on energy consulting. And I really didn't want to do that. I wanted to do architecture and integrate energy efficiency into it. But so um, 
over the years that you know the the way that business culture has changed has been really remarkable. I mean, based both. Oh, you know, gender equity and more diversity culturally and uh, just uh, the, the sense of teamwork and sharing is just uh, business has just totally changed. Yeah. Well, I noticed it in, um, in a good way. Yeah. In researching not just your website, but some of the um, uh, some of your background that you were doing those things before they were acquired. Is it just uh, innate or you just think it's kind of the right thing to do? Well, I think a lot of it's obvious. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think that Believe if you not, engage not people, people in a so. team, I mean, well, let's make a sports reference. So how about the Golden State Warriors? You know, oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, you have your superstars, but then the superstar doesn't show up. The best player in basketball goes down and the team wins. Yeah, that's a, obviously a strength convenient, of numbers, you know, <laughs> a convenient and, and um, biased <laughs> reference. But how do you do that even within your company to know, you know, you have your people who, who lead on pro- specific projects and there are those if for whatever reason they have to be pulled off or take or pulled in another direction that you have someone who may not have been used to working in that capacity. Is it just kind of a confidence thing from you as a kind of a Steve Kerr position? Uh, uh, I, I think position? That- I think that, you know, communication is what everything's about. And if people are feeling, you know, there used to be this saying in architecture, what a definition, you know, what's an associate in an architecture firm? Or how is an associate like a mushroom? And and the answer was, well, we're kept in the dark and every once in a while people throw manure on our heads. And it really shouldn't be that way. You should be part of the understanding of what the team needs. Yeah, that's a great, great reference. We'll return to, to our show when we return. This is the Modern Architect, KZSU Stanford, 90.1 FM. We're talking today with David Baker, fellow AIA and principal of David Baker Architects, a progressive architecture firm located in San Francisco and Oakland, California. For more information, you can visit dbarchitect.com. That's dbarchitect.com. Segue back to our uh, the mushroom reference. How has it changed from no longer being mushroom, at least in, within your well, own I, culture or your own culture? I mean, or I your think, own, uh, firm? you know, if you if people communicate and they understand what needs to be done, then I, I think people, you know, every productivity is about agency and, and being involved and engagement. And I'm in this group of architects who meet and talk about business and. And one of the people we sit down with these different architects and they go, how do you stop people from using social media when they're at work? You know, do you have your server not allow them to log on to Facebook? And I was like, why do you want to stop them from doing social media? If they know that something needs to be done, they'll get it done. And, you know, if, hopefully they'll, they're engaged to a point where they're reposting the firm's social media and using their networks to enhance the entire situation instead of feeling you know, jealous and left out or oppressed. So engagement, you know, it's all about having a goal to, you know, design a building or go to a community meeting and talk to the community or, you know, to talk, share. One of the things that's always been difficult, I think, in companies is sharing knowledge and not siloing. Yeah, how do you do that? I mean, I'm, do you have well, a, a formula or it's a, you know, we, uh, a system? I or? think that there's, you know, it's super encouraged, but we also, we've been... You know, using our, uh, we're incredibly active Slack users. And so there's a channel called Sharing is Caring. 
And, uh, you know, I can say, hey, you know, is, is there a special code for residential stairs that allows them to be steeper than commercial stairs? And is there anything I can do? And somebody will know. It's really amazing what uh, pooling knowledge. So instead of, you know, having to be at a Monday yeah. morning meeting and, you know, shouting it out or something, we said, there's a constant uh, interchange yeah. of information and people asking questions with different people. Yeah. You know, it, that's been a quite a great development too. I mean, all tools are, you know, they have to be in the right cultural setting. Yeah. David, do you ever turn it off or no, you went out of work, you know, work being say uh, nine to six, just, just when you go out to back out to your car, your bike or walk. No car. I don't have a car. Um, yeah. That's what I brought in the bike or walk. I don't go out to my car. You're always looking in your environment. What? You're always looking around to see, you know, how it can either apply to your particular practice well, or know how it can make things better or how you could help make things better. You know, I think that, uh, you know, what there's that saying that, you know, vacationing with an architect is like just going out to look at buildings. No way. Okay. I've heard of a different version. That's why. Yeah. I was really? like, you just, you go there to. Do you do that? Oh yeah. Okay. All right. Uh, and I think, or look at cities and see how they're put together. It's really fascinating. Yeah. Maybe eating too is good. <laughs> you got to eat too. Yeah. And take that. Okay. How about us? Going out and seeing that, where have you seen, other than here in the U.S., or maybe even the U.S., cities or communities or towns where there's just such a great people engagement? And it's because the the design and the structure of uh, their built environment. Is there any well, place yeah, in particular? It, it, it's always a super complicated thing, right? Okay. Uh, and, the, you know, the physical... I got in real trouble once because I was on an AIA panel. You got in real trouble? <laughs> Yeah, and then they were talking about what makes a great city, and all these architects were talking about how to make a great building. And I said, well, you know, I think the buildings, it's nice if they're good buildings, but if the build, you know, if the plan of the city doesn't foster community, then the buildings can be super great, and the city can really suck. So, uh, Did you say that, too? Yeah, and all the architects got really mad because, you know, architects <laughs> are supposed to, supposed to, we're supposed to be, but, you know, uh, so to that end, you know, over the years, we've gotten more into larger and larger projects where, which I find really fascinating. We're, and th- we're not doing city planning in the sense that a city hires us to come up with a code or something. We're doing larger projects and doing really uh, large development proposals that are like a neighborhood. So they have streets and parks. and Yeah. You know. So you're doing the entire community. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and, you know, the larger mixed-use buildings do become a community. Yeah. But, you know, we're talking about more of a, you know, many 10 acres, 30 acres, something like that. Now, how do you, uh, do you have a specific formula or, or process in working with the community prior to beginning? That's really interesting because what happens, I think, and certainly in my generation, you know, I'm the professional, I know everything, I'm going to do something that's good for you. You know, that famous Steve Jobs quote, which is the, the customer doesn't know what they want. Yeah. And so, oh. and yeah, there is some truth in that people are often limited by their immediate vision. That's been something uh, that's been changing as, you know, that you have younger generation that's more open, like they actually want a place to live. Whereas my generation, which, uh, you know, the boomer generation or perhaps their curmudgeon boomer (laughs) generation, you know, they tend to, to, to not want anything to ever change. And they've got their house that's worth so many million dollars and, they don't want to see any larger buildings, even if they stood on their roof, you know, that, and, you know, they don't really care about where their kids live or if their kids will ever find a place 
that's you know as nice as theirs. Yeah. The other thing though about community input, which is really interesting, is that it's super important now. And you know, there's a, part of the fact is that if you in, if you talk to people, they'll understand and they won't go into you know uh, total panic, fear, opposition mode. So communication just in and of itself is super important in you know some larger project. But what the thing that's really interesting to me, we we just are doing this uh, pretty good sized project uh, right south of San Francisco, and we went through with the client and we won the land and uh, we had a plan and we started meeting with the community it's a redo of a, a housing authority project with adding a lot of um, non-housing authority units so it's, it's making it much more diverse in terms of income and housing types and adding a big part well anyway we started working with the community and the plan completely changed much for the better so i mean the idea that who brought you, that on was it the community you both well you know we have this the our you know incredibly collaborative, super smart younger generation. They're making all the planning a game, you know. So they have these these games with different, uh, you know. Here's your and so people understand a little bit of the, the dynamics because I get a little bit frustrated with my progressive friends who just go like, "Oh, we should only build affordable housing," and you go like, "Well, how do you want to pay for that?" And they'll go, "Well, you know, if you build more housing, prices will go up," and you go. That's a new law of economics that economists have never heard of, you know, because if you have a shortage of something that's really highly desirable, the costs go up. And if you make more of that thing, the costs stabilize. And if you make a whole bunch of it, you know, that's the great thing about capitalism. It provides affordability by developers going broke, you know. So that, no, I'm just saying you, over, you overproduce. That's the, the classic way that affordability is done without subsidies. Yeah. Is that developers get overextended and the banks take a bath on their loans and and you know a bunch of units go up for really pennies on the dollar. I, that's not a very rational way to provide affordability, mm-hmm. but you know for sure if you have a demand for something, providing enough of it is better than not providing it. Nice. What does uh, circle back to that? Um, sometimes we can all be limited by our own immediate vision. Are there many cases where you can? Is there any a situation where you can kind of give an example of that? Well, I think uh, I don't know if you participated in Parking Day, and when that ha- you know, when they started Parking Day ten years ago, it was actually the Rebar uh, guys. It was like a landscape architect art collective, and they went out and they rented a parking space and they put turf down and a bench, okay. and people it was really interesting yeah. because. A lot of people's minds were just blown because in one parking space, you, know, you can have like 20 people hanging out, yeah. really a wonderful space. But what was interesting is the number of people, too, who were got really angry and would call the police, you know, like <laughs> you are misusing this parking space by having a lawn and a bench. I mean, I'm not kidding. Yeah. I mean, and just that lack of vision because they're just like, people need parking. You've taken yeah. away a parking space. This must be a crime. But uh, and now I think there's much less of that viewpoint because people understand that probably well at least in some places they understand that probably parking spaces are not a life and death matter. I think there's yeah. many Americans who still still believe that their future happiness is predicated on having a lot of free street parking. <laughs> I know. Well, so so there's a great example of that immediate vision has changed a bit. Yeah. How about even on on your own projects and communities when. Uh, 
you've been commissioned for a project and the community you knew the, uh, beforehand was uh, not too thrilled about what the prospects could be. And then to actually shift them over to have an understanding of, oh, no, here, here's actually how it's going to actually be. You're going to enjoy it much more than you think right now, and we're going to explain it. Yeah, and what's fun is that you get an idea, whether it's rooftop agriculture, if you can believe it, uh, putting a commercial space underneath an apartment building was viewed as total insanity in 1985. And and if you proposed that... Just in 85? Yeah, and you'd get uh, people saying things like, well, that's a great idea, but you can't do that anymore because you will never get a loan if you have a store at the base of your apartment building. It used to actually be against code. You used to be able to only put the lobby, the trash bin, and parking, and you couldn't put commercial on the ground level. It was like against code. It was not allowed under the uniform building code. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, and they, you know, eventually that changed. They started allowing it a little bit. You could have 20%. And finally, you know, we're at a state now where, you know, people in San Francisco were simply not putting parking in new buildings or putting very, very little of it. Excellent. This is The Modern Architect on KZSU, Stanford 90.1 FM. We're talking today with David Baker, principal of David Baker Architects, a progressive architecture firm located in San Francisco and Oakland, California. For more information, feel free to visit dbarchitect.com. Again, dbarchitect.com. David, along the lines of that, the parking, how is it working with cities and planners in 2019 as opposed to, say, 2015? Is there a big difference in the, the city's requirements, criteria? Uh, are they more open, less open? What's your... Well, I think it's changing everywhere. San Francisco, at some point, there's some progressive architects and planners switched the parking minimum to a parking maximum. And I think the uh, people who are really oh, pro-parking, okay. they're just like, well, who would... And they're right, you're still going to do the maximum, right? Because you, parking, it's like, isn't it food... Air, sleep, oh, yeah, the main. and parking are the necessities <laughs> of life. You know, so, true. Know. And so and all, and pretty soon developers figured out, well, in San Francisco, even before Lyft and Uber, uh, it made no difference in the value of the apartment, whether it had a parking space thrown in there for free. And then now with, uh, you know, ride hail has changed that where people just don't see the reason to have a car here. Yeah. What's the percentage of design and just communication with people, if you've ever quantified a percentage, that you, do you do on a daily basis, where you actually have to interface and work with people as in communication versus just straight design? Have you ever uh, kind of well, I, put a number to that or a thought to it? You know, I think there's different schools of thought, but certainly being able to engage people without you know, getting into a scream fest but to, you know, just like talk to people and, yeah. and change their minds a little bit. People's minds don't change overnight. But uh, one of the things that's happened in San Francisco, for instance, is, I don't know, 30 years ago, even 20 years ago, if you proposed a building, a bunch of neighbors would show up and they'd say something like, well, it's all very good that you provided one parking per unit, but you know that three-bedroom unit is going to have three people in each bedroom, so you actually need six parking spaces for that one unit. 
And I'm not going to be satisfied to provide that. And I'm going to get incredibly emotional and go down the plan commission. I might burst into tears. I'll definitely turn beet red as I just get incredibly angry about it. You and must know some of those people because you're, you're describing them quite well. <laughs> it's really been interesting. And fortunately, yeah, like they're, they're, I was at a planning commission meeting once where a restaurant was doing an addition. They wanted to put a two unit building on Clement Street above the restaurant, two units of apartments, and they were going to not provide parking for it. And 200 neighbors showed up and the uh, planning commissioner, before they turned down this project, says, I moved from New York to San Francisco so I could park. The president, okay. the, uh, the, the, yeah. the chair, you know, the, the head well, of the planning commission. Merchants Club? Or an no, she was, you know, she was, she was just very, she thought that was just the most outrageous, incredible yeah. idea she'd ever heard of. Now, I, mean, I, I, you know, I went to a uh, community meeting recently on a project and we were, the, the planning department actively encourages you to use less parking. You go to the planning commission and they go, why did, you know, no, you can't have two cars per, we don't care how many million dollars your units are, you can't provide two two spaces per unit that's you know wrong they won't let people do that but uh even neighbors will say things like oh yeah we don't care because you know who has a car anymore yeah. here because why would you have a car you've got car share you've got lyft and uber you've got decent transit you've got better bike lanes every year why would you have uh, you know this uh, multi-thousand pound piece of steel that is you know an active contributor yeah. to the end of the world yeah. why do you want to do that because so it's convenient? Yeah. Your, your response usually, because that's not going to go away. Hmm. That's not going to go away with new projects. People are going to, that same issue is going to keep coming Oh, out. but it's changed yeah. totally. I'm just saying yeah. that, that it's, it's easier to get a project through with no parking in San Francisco, at least on the east side of town, than okay. it is with tons of parking. Do you think that will change legislation as well? Well, they did. I mean, they changed it. The, the city allows zero parking throughout the city. So there's no requirement for parking in San Francisco at all anymore. And that was changed legislatively. Yeah. Was it because of the legislation or no experiences like that? Well, just the whole zeitgeist change, the whole people's attitude about it. Because, I mean, people have a, you know, we're cultural and we assume something is correct. And it usually takes us a while to, you know, to move ourselves off something that as it gradually becomes more and more rational. And, you know, I'll say that, you know, the whole, we're in the midst of a mobility revolution and which has really made a difference. And I think a lot of the younger people in particular, it's like, I'm going to give you, I mean, how many younger people, how many people have landlines anymore? There was a time when not having a landline was considered just, you know, oh, yeah. kind of totally insane. Not right? too long ago. Yeah. I mean, so 10 years, if, if not less. Yeah. Do you have a landline? I don't have no, landline. No, no. Nobody has landlines. No one has landlines. <laughs> I mean, so, a few people do you know, for their burglar alarm or something, but yeah, yeah, it's really uncommon to have a landline. So, I mean, all these things change really rapidly, and they better because you know we're up against it on uh, climate change, global warming, carbon reduction. Yeah. You know, where where you have people, you know, like it's really much more severe. I mean, it's great that we're thinking electric cars, but, you know, we can have all electric cars and we're not going to make our carbon reduction, even if we were 100% electric. Yeah. People need to, you know, change their lives. They need to live. And the, the greatest, you know, the thing about mobility, the best mobility is uh, walking. And the thing about walking is you got to not have great distances. Now, 
You got a great phrase here. I don't, I've heard it, but not actually coined. You said mobility revolution. Is that a phrase you've coined or no? Everyone, no, I think that the transit geeks. Uh, <laughs> transit geeks. They, they, they've said that. Well, I, no, I, because if you, if you were like just you know like talking about class two, class one bike lanes a lot. And, yeah. You know, what, what's your thing? Yeah, about the bike lanes. I don't remember where the mayor said twenty miles in San Francisco. Oh yeah, Mayor bike? Breed. Yeah, for for safe. Is uh, it Mayor safety? Breed for Emperor? So what, what is it? I don't remember exactly, but I, I remember just kind of hearing something about yeah, she, bike she's, lanes. she's great. So she's at Bike to Work Day. Okay. And, uh, you know, like the city was, I, I wouldn't, they're, they're cautious, you know, they're installing on a really slow rate. And she was really going, no, and somebody died and you're doing this. She had bike lanes going in a week. Unfortunately, it required, you know, a sacrifice of somebody losing their lives. Wow. But then, you know, she'd put the bike lane in like now. She wouldn't like wring her hands. And she goes, well, uh, I'm here and I'm, I have a directive. I'm the mayor. I get to do directives. I like doing that. And she goes, you know, uh, she's doing 20 miles of protected bike lanes over the next two years. And it's not an uh, empty promise coming from Mayor Breed. She's uh, definitely a doer. Yeah. Now, <laughs> how will that has got to affect design in the built environment if you go with 20 miles of bike lanes. It's so interesting how it changes. So San Francisco, we don't have a car requirement anymore. We have a bike requirement. And, of course, you know, we designed it so it would be really easy to use and meet all these criteria. So it's become, like, really gigantic. And I'll just say that, you know, it's, it's interesting because, actually, you don't need that. You, you don't need as much bike storage in buildings as we have instituted as a minimum because all these people are riding share bike and they're riding jump which are, you know, the shared systems out there, which have made a, been a total revolution. And they're having a number of impacts, uh, one of which is you have a lot more riders, you need a lot more bike lanes, you need a lot more bike parking spaces outside, but you don't really need more inside. I mean, we were at a point when we were, we were recommending one per bedroom, and I think we're not doing that anymore. We're maybe one per unit. Who, who, whose idea was it to put that one per bedroom? Oh, you know, that was interesting. We were doing a project on Petrero Hill, which is like a pretty not pro-development area. And we were fighting our way through that. And uh, the realtor came and she goes, well, do you have bike parking? We go, yeah, we have one per unit. She goes, oh, that's not enough. Luxury apartments in San Francisco, you need one per bedroom. That's, that was the real estate professional, you know. And so it really kind of moved in that direction. Yeah, but I but I'm going to say I think now okay. all these things changed. I think now she's actually wrong because there's many more bike trips. But you know all these uh, share bikes out here are getting ten trips a day, yeah. and you know you have uh, you have that's a huge. We're just in the beginning of that. You know the electrified share bike is completely revolutionizing uh, mobility in denser cities, and it could in Palo Alto too. If yeah. Now, what, if you had enough density. I just moved right over <laughs> Which it. Which you don't. <laughs> I moved right over that. <laughs> you caught it. Um, about, you're going to edit that out. <laughs> no, no, it'll go in there. Um, about the projects you're doing now, share with us some of the, your most recent projects, if you're at liberty to uh, to do so. You don't have to name names or anything, but you know, well, you some interesting you, projects. You can't yeah. talk about any projects you do for tech companies because, you know, they're all... No, you don't. You could say some they of the have challenges. They non-disclosure agreement, so you can't, I can't talk about any of those. You're welcome to talk about whatever you like to talk about because we well, want to you know, hear you. It's your it's your show, David. So, you know, some of your most recent projects because they're um, they're unique to say the least. Yeah, we're doing a lot of affordable housing. Still, is our I think our 
first love. Um, it's an incredibly uh, rewarding area to work in. And how? And how? You know, share. Well, with us. we were, we did a building is formerly homeless and uh, touring a journalist through it, and he asked the building manager. He goes, uh, "Well, have you had any health improvements? Uh, if any, you know, do you notice any health improvements?" And he goes, "Well, let me think. Uh, yeah, we had two people, and uh, they couldn't walk, and now they're walking." Whoa! And, uh, you know, and, and that's uh, like a revival. Yeah, it's like, <laughs> and he goes. And the guy goes, what do you mean? Like, you know, you've laid, and he goes, no, you know, you, 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 people, they get in a, they've been living on the streets, sleeping on the sidewalk. They move inside, they get physical therapy. They're, you know, they're, they're not, they're warm at night and, uh, they, you know, they, and they start eating better and they start walking again. And so, I mean, you get massive health improvements and I'm going to, okay, can I grandstand a little bit here? It's your show. Okay, so you know, I think that there's people use this rubric of um, affordable housing, and my feeling is is that you know the commons, the government, us as a collective, we really need to provide special needs housing. And special needs housing would be home people who are homeless. It'd be veterans, disabled veterans, uh, low income seniors, and you know maybe very low income individuals. That needs to be subsidized. The market is not going to, it's not going to provide that need. The fact that an average person who, uh, you know, maybe, you know, we, you know, I know people in San Francisco who are living in rent control departments, you know, a couple, they'll have an income of $250,000 mm-hmm. a year. They have a couple kids. They can't move out of the rent control department and they cannot find housing, suitable housing. And they move back to, in the case I'm thinking of, they move back to Alabama. This is, you know, shameful. And it's the type of thing that has been created by, you know, we went from, we built California with no regulation, right? And now we're trying to say, hey, all you do is you meet sensible regulations and you can build. And people are acting like, you know, oh, that's, we want local control to stop all construction, even if it meets our zoning. Mm -hmm. And that's what a lot of, particularly the wealthier places do and so there's you know there's no housing being built so you have this thing where the middle of the the workforce people who in other states would you know be flourish yeah you know they could do whatever are having to leave because we cannot provide the market we are not allowing the market to provide uh housing for people who make a regular income yeah where do you see um if that continues, where do you see it leading to? Or leading? Well, I think it's a disaster economically for California. Uh, you know, we're very lucky, but you know, if you make an if you're a regular architect, and it's very very hard to buy a house, probably in the Bay Area, almost impossible unless you have some help from relatives. And I think it's you know, people they'll come for a certain amount of time, and then when they have you know kids and stuff, they want to. They want to have a regular yeah. life. And so I think it's a disaster economically for California if we don't vastly increase our housing. You know, we, we have a need in the Bay Area for 188,000 units being completed by 2023. If anybody wants to take bets that that happens, I'm quite oh. willing because <laughs> yeah. it ain't going to happen. We're not even going to get close. It, it, it's, that's four years and at our current rates, in our current rates, which are the highest production we've seen in decades, it would take 12 years. And what's happened is because of our lack of encouragement of housing, 
in uh, in a multitude of ways. You know, we could we could like never add 180,000 units, or it could take 30 years. Yeah. And you know, the California needs three and a half million units to to catch up. So I, I don't think we're going to catch up, but we really doing better is is an incredibly low bar, and we got to do better. Yeah, for sure. This is the Modern Architect, KZSU, 90.1 FM, Stanford. We're talking today with David Baker, principal of David Baker Architects, a progressive architecture firm located in San Francisco and Oakland, California. For more information, you can visit dbarchitect.com, dbarchitect.com. David, on that sort of a sobering insight and experience, you're obviously championing um, the affordable housing, and it's the designs are actually amazing. And how do you balance that sense of design and still have the affordability at the same time? Because I've seen I've seen homes that uh, are probably more expensive than. Uh, so I'm looking. We're looking for our audience. We're looking. We're in uh, David's office today, and the, your designs are better than their <laughs> luxury homes. How do you balance that appeal? That that uh, presence. Well, I, you know, there is some bottom base case building which is not going to look good and is going to be the cheapest building. And then there's some, it's like, if let's say you're making dessert, like you could make, if you, if you had like cream okay. and sugar and I don't know, lard <laughs> and nuts <laughs> and you made a dessert, it could be a pretty disgusting dessert, <laughs> yeah. right? Whereas if you have like, you know, yogurt and fresh fruit, that could be better. So I, I guess what I'm trying to say is that Design, if, if you have the base case, which is nothing, where dessert would be like, I don't know, a stick. Okay. <laughs> and on the other, other hand, you have this Graphic mound reference. of crap. Yeah. There's a middle ground. So you have to decide what is design worth. Is it worth 5%, 10%? I think at 5% over the base case, you can do a very nice building. And so I think that uh, people conflate good design with being too costly. And, you know, and actually what's been interesting, like HUD, for instance, historically really wanted their buildings to look, uh, you know, cheap and awful because they were politically that was more acceptable than having them be nice. Aha. So that factors in as well, does it not? Oh, yeah. The political perception? Right now in San Francisco, the mayor's office housing will not let us do any balconies because they've decided the balconies, which are, well, there's... The tenth, that building has okay. no balconies. That's the new one. It's Creed Corner, the other one, which had balconies. So the cost of balconies is like a hundredth of a percent of the cost of the building. But what they do is they go, oh, we've been spending too much money on affordable housing, so we're just going to not have balconies. <laughs> you know, and it's like a, a classic soundbite approach to uh, a problem, which, you know, instead of a data-driven approach. Yeah. Now, I've held a popular, almost every other show, it seems I, believe, I, I bring this up, is... Uh, I believe a city can benefit by having, for lack of a better term, or actually I'm using the term that Los Angeles uses, which is a chief design officer. And his name, Christopher Hawthorne, former. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and and the, the mayor. What's your thought on ha- of a city having an architect or uh, at least an individual with an architect bent 
as their sort of right-hand person to look at the, address the the topic that you just touched on in that that perception of a balcony. Well, if it was Chris Hawthorne, I'd be fine with it. Okay. Your problem with benevolent dictatorships is that you want a good dictator. Okay. <laughs> and Chris, Chris, I would qualify. You know, I think that uh, uh, it's all very. Yeah. Complicated. No, let it rip. I'm going to hear what you what Well, your you know, planning departments yeah. are both are, are uh, okay. They're, it's great to have somebody to push uh, against. You know, it's a political process. So we did actually, the w- building we did recently that did have balconies was because it was done under the aegis of the uh, former redevelopment agency. So they had approved it with balconies. So, you know, the mayor's office of housing yeah. went, take the balconies off. And we went, oh, we'd love to, but, <laughs> you know. Really, did you say that, like that we'd love to? Oh, of course. <laughs> you know, I really, I'm so yeah. sorry. And, you know, we, and actually it, it was interesting because I did a uh, building once and we put retail on the ground level and my developer went, uh, what the hell is this retail for? And I went, oh, you know, the planners are going to improve it a lot faster with the retail. And he goes, oh, okay, we'll leave it in. Uh-huh. So, you know, you, you, you can, you know, so, so know, you have Machiavelli in there. But you have that wisdom to help positively influence. I don't know if it's wisdom. Okay, uh, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll lay off your shoulder then. Experience. Yeah, you, yeah had that experience. I think, you, you know, there's uh, constraints aren't bad. And if you take all constraints away, I mean, one of the fears people have is let's say you just, eliminate all barriers to housing production, then you just end up with a bunch of boxes with mm-hmm. vinyl sliders and, you know, stucco or something. Though I'll point out that San Francisco was built with no design review. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, and the market was like, oh, yeah, we'll, we'll pay more. Or you can sell it quicker if you make it a beautifully proportioned, you know, Victorian, which was came out of a catalog, right? But That's right. Yeah, so. They did. Yeah, so, are out of so I think we have a we have a lack yeah. of faith in our own sensibilities. I mean, I, I I don't think you can depend on the market completely, though. We can't accomplish everything with regulation and control and subsidy. Does that sound? Yeah. And your uh, your take on our show, unfortunately, is uh, coming up on the hour mark. What else did we not may not have covered on your show, David? That you'd like to share with uh, your audience today? Oh, well. What's real important to you right now, or what would you like to, you've got a form of a... a uh, one of the really fun things we've been doing is uh, the 1% for uh, architecture. Actually, we do it 3% for doing projects for, on a pro bono basis. Okay. We just did a... Um, How many, 3% or 1%? Well, it's supposed to be, it's called 1%, but we end up doing 3% because 1%, you know doesn't you can't get enough yeah. done and uh, you know as people do it and they spearhead it we, we did a uh, wonderful uh, restaurant facility for a woman who's a uh, comes out of la casina and she's from the himalayas and comes from a history of difficult history and and, and now she's uh got this fantastic she makes twenty thousand momos which are like a dumpling yeah. every day but then we also did a, a wonderful garden on um treasure island for a homeless housing out there where we worked with the homeless folks and they helped build it and it's got you know uh plants oh, nice. <laughs> and people can it's got plants <laughs> yeah i know it's like a little park okay and uh, you know it was pretty brutal and people really love it so and that's a, another example so that i think that that kind of giving back is super important yeah excellent david it's been a real honor and pleasure having you uh, on the show today thank you very well, thank much thank you tom yeah i hope you consider uh coming back again soon you got a lot of projects that's for sure 
Yeah. yeah, at Stanford, I was ribbing Stanford. You oh, sure were. Yeah, and uh, you're welcome. I don't know if they're going to let me let me back in. <laughs> yeah, you're always welcome, David. Thank you very much. You've been listening to the Modern Architect. I'm Tom Dioro. Our guest today has been David Baker, principal of David Baker Architects, a progressive architecture firm located in San Francisco and Oakland that creates acclaimed buildings in urban environments. DBA is known for exceptional housing, creative site strategies, designing for density, and integrated new construction into the public realm. DBA also has exhibited a passion for and deep understanding of the power of humane and respectful environments to transform neighborhoods and elevate the lives of individuals and families. For more information, feel free to visit dbarchitect.com. Again, dbarchitect.com. Join us again next time when we welcome another outstanding architect, engineer, influencer, or civic leader committed to positive and sustainable cities, communities, and lives. The Modern Architect is recorded at Stanford University Studios and on California sites throughout California, of course, hence a production of KZSU Radio. Today, the recording engineer is Stephen Blanton, engineer Mark Lawrence, and we're all assisted by Akshay Jaggi. And I'm the executive producer and host of The Modern Architect, Tom Dion. If you wish to contact us, our email address is interviews at kzsu.stanford.edu. Again, that's interviews with an S at kzsu.stanford.edu. Are you an architect, designer, contractor, or engineer? Modeler.com is a platform connecting architects and other specifiers with building product manufacturers. Modeler.com's engaged network of over 240,000 architects, designers, and construction professionals use Modeler.com's tools to discover, discuss, and specify products appropriate for building projects. We at KZSU Stanford thank Modeler.com for the generous underwriting of production and broadcasting costs for The Modern Architect.